Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. In this episode, I'm speaking with Kim Morrison of Argyle. We talked to Kim about the water rights strategy that he manages that we've featured on the podcast two times before, but going back three years. So we spend a little time reacquainting ourselves with the dynamics and the framework and objectives of that strategy, how it seeks to make a return of 10% or north of that each year through income and capital growth, and how, in fact, since its inception and over the last 10 or so years, it's actually had a compound annual growth rate of closer to 15%. We talk about the underlying drivers and demand growth for water and a finite asset. We talk about the legislative framework, and we also talk about how different weather patterns can affect the strategy. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. I certainly did. Uh, Remember that this podcast isn't designed, nor is it specific advice. People are very much encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. And as usual, uh, seek the advice of an advisor, read disclosure, disclosure documents, etc. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the episode. Kim Morrison, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Thanks very much, David. Good to be here. Now, Kim, the keen listeners to the podcast will recognise you from uh, episodes back in uh, February 19 and February 20. And of course, it's been a bit more than three years now, so we thought it'd be great to check back in. Um, But as a way to refresh people, do do you want to maybe talk a little bit about uh, the water rights strategy, what it is, how it seeks to make... um, gains? Yeah. So one of the really essential things in high value agriculture in Australia is water. Obviously it's a dry continent. We've got very limited resources and the application of that water is increasingly towards the highest value horticultural crops. Uh, And what we started out doing was trying to find a way to channel capital into farmers' businesses uh, to be able to expand and cater to these markets across Asia that have been demanding increasingly the produce that we can output. We had a lot of free trade agreements written over the last 15 years or so, and that lowered all these tariff barriers. And then obviously the per capita wealth increases across Asia have driven up food demand and particularly for things that we can produce here in in our climate. And so what we've seen is an opportunity for farmers to to transition from traditional crops, perhaps of uh, bulk export commodity crops like cotton or rice, into something a bit more high value, uh, being fresh produce, nuts, uh, wine that is increasingly in demand across Asia and the premiums that are being paid are pretty substantial. But one of the challenges to do that is how do you transition your private family farming business uh, without access to capital other than bank debt? And that's really what we saw as the challenge and that's why we started to then raise capital to go, okay, if we can invest in the ownership of the water rights that the farmers own, that we buy them off them, lease them back, or otherwise sell the water to them each year so they have that as their input. It can liberate a pretty big part of their balance sheet, which they can then invest in developing those crop types. And particularly when you think about those permanent crops, usually they're trees or vines, they're Mm. going to take two to three to five years before you're getting a cash flow. And that's the reason that they have a challenge in trying to change up their productivity to get to those thresholds if you're just relying on bank debt. 
the banks really want to lend against cash flow and if you've got all your farm turned over to permanent tree crops without any cash flow for five years, that becomes a big challenge. So initially what the strategy has been about is how to get capital into agriculture uh, and we, you know, we came from agriculture, we understood all these drivers, we understood that water is really valuable and that the water framework that we have around, you know, the, the water rights themselves mm-hmm. uh, is something which is quite robust in terms of its legal framework now and that we're able to invest in the ownership of those water rights in a diversified portfolio across different regions in Australia to be able to get exposure to a whole lot of different commodity drivers, a whole lot of different farming practices um, to be geographically diversified more than, say, a similar investment in farmland. And how long has the strategy been operated by yourselves for? Yeah, so uh, we have been pursuing this strategy since 2008 mm-hmm. and our, and this fund has been running since 2010. So the Argyle Water Fund has uh, been in place for over a decade and uh, we've had uh, lots of exposure to different cycles where we've had droughts and floods in various different years. Um, so we've been managing across these different climatic variations. Um, the fund since inception has delivered just better than 15% annualised returns mm-hmm. and that's a mix of income and capital growth. So in managing the fund, what we endeavour to do is uh, we own the rights to water supplies into the future. Uh, so we own a share of the storage capacities, if you like, of various different river systems. And we get allocated a volume of water each year, which we can then use or sell. We don't have farms, so we are selling that water or we're otherwise leasing out these water rights over longer periods of time so that the lessee receives that annual volume of water each year. So we're monetizing the investment of, well, generating income out of sales of water and out of leasing the water rights out over multiple year periods. We also participate in the capital growth of these assets because they're very limited. There's only so many on issue in each jurisdiction and each geography. And we're not building more dams and increasing the supply of those water rights in any of these regions. Uh, And we're not likely to either, in particular the Murray-Darling Basin where you know we've gone through a process of the last 30 years to actually reduce the amount of water that's being used for consumptive use and to increase the volume that is flowing through for the environment. And Kim, what what's the split between income and capital growth that investors should think about for this style of investment? Yeah, so ordinarily we'd expect that the income generation should be somewhere between 2 and 5% per annum mm-hmm. um, and that's what we aim for. But that's really driven by what are the climatic conditions that we might experience in any one year. Uh, the capital growth historically has run anywhere from sort of 5 to 12% uh, in these various different assets and income has been somewhere between 1% and 6% depending on the year. Uh, so our historical record has been, as I said, about 15% over, uh, you know, looking at it as an average over a five to seven year recommended investment period, we target a 10% return, mm-hmm. roughly 4% income and 6% capital growth. And that's that's what we endeavour to do. And if I'm right in thinking that capital growth is coming from the farmers, i.e. I, the, the water supply is finite, I think most is in the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, 
they're moving as they can secure the water, they can move to higher and higher margin crops, whether that be from rice to cotton to nuts. And, and often that involves a tree that's being planted for 20 years and you're going to keep that tree alive for 20 years. So it becomes super important for your capital to be protected, i.e. locking in those water rights. And, and the demand coming out of Asia is just growing for the produce that Australia can pr produce because it's seen as um, very secure, very high quality um, and, and ticking all the boxes. And if you think China is a good growth story from a demographics and a westernisation point of view, but you don't really like investing in the geopolitical risk in, in China, well, it's, they're still probably going to eat food. So you can play it this way. Um, am I roughly right in my thinking of that? Yeah, that's right. There's a few different drivers um, of this ongoing capital growth uh, that we're seeing. And, and one of those is, yes, that transition of water from lower value to higher value crops. And that's been a sort of deliberate uh, function of setting up this market-based framework around water in Australia, recognising that it is scarce and that we're going to put in place this cap and trade framework. So mm -hmm. the amount of water that can be extracted out of these river systems is capped and finite. And and that's uh, that, that then allows there to be at least 60% of the water flows for the environment. And it's only the other sort of 30 to 40% in any of these systems that's able to be accessed for consumptive use. And there's a cap on that. And that then drives a market behaviour where people can observe what the price of water is and make decisions around their farming enterprise as to can they afford to use that water and what are they deriving from that use. And what we're seeing is this investment in higher value use of water. So we've transitioned increasingly away from, say, dairy in some districts and rice in some districts and towards cotton in some areas and then to the next level in terms of permanent plantings of citrus or table grapes or almonds that have got a far greater value per unit of water used. And as the capital is becoming available to invest in and develop those enterprises, we're seeing that water volume shift and the revenues that are being generated from it go up. And that gets capitalised into the asset value because the water, there are no more water rights available and they're increasingly bid towards these higher value crops. Yes, the driver is certainly around export of Australian food and fibre. And it's not necessarily just about China. Uh, we produce about 75 million, oh, sorry, we produce enough food in Australia to feed about 75 million people. Obviously, we have a population 26 million, so there's quite an exportable surplus. But finding a home for that 50 million people population is quite readily done when you look at the per capita wealth numbers across all of Asia, not just China. So mm. even when China, for example, has had you know, embargoes on Australian cotton over the last two years, we've still been able to find a ready home for that crop and uh, in other markets, same with barley, same with beef. The red wine industry, that's one that has been more hard hit by that, uh, well, effectively these really high tariff barriers that hopefully are now starting to, we're seeing some evidence that that might start to be eliminated shortly. Sure, but you've got the whole growth story out of, well, I think India on a, 
a population basis is either past or set to pass. Uh, China is the most populous nation in the world. You've got uh, Indonesia with, what, some 180 million people just to the north of us um, and a lot of people talking about the deglobalisation, a lot of manufacturing moving out of China into that Southeast Asia band, which will probably lift them up as much away China has had that economic growth. So um, that seems like a good underlying growth story for it. How does weather affect the strategy and the performance of the strategy over the short term? So over the one to three year period, you know, we've had, it's interesting, you know, I I went to a boarding school in Sydney, a lot of my mates uh, from places like WeWar and the Northwest, places you're familiar with. um, And I know from speaking with them and my involvement there that, and some of the investments we have in those areas that, you know, it's almost in the rural sector, uh, my, my measure is if you go into a town like Tamworth, Armadale, um, Narrabri, you go to the Toyota dealer and say, <laughs> how long do I have to wait for a Land Cruiser? That's directly relational, that question, to how, how the economic performance is going. And, and you have to wait a long time for a Toyota Land Cruiser. And in some cases, I think they've got this 79 series, which looks like it was built in the 80s. And I think they've closed the book, like it's 18-month wait, you can't even order them or something like that. So, yeah, I, I'm keen to understand because it, it feels that we're almost at the top of a cycle with cattle prices, commodity prices, and rain is one of those things that's been, you know, plentiful. How does the strategy go? And it's been three years since we've spoken to you and we've probably had three great rain years for people um, you know, my good mate out there on the farm, I remember talking to him about this and I was saying, you know, well, you know, when you get this rain and how meaningful to that? And he said to me, Dave, it's like $2 coins falling from the sky. Yeah, that's very true. So, you know, we've had over the last three years, we've had um, both in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean, we've had a setup which has actually driven a lot of moisture over the Australian continent. So we've had this really quite exceptional period of above average rainfall three years in a row. And you might remember back to the, the our earlier discussions in this podcast was when 2019, yeah, 2019, 2020, when, you know, we'd come through, you know, three very, very dry years and we had, you know, just no rainfall in places like Wee War and Moree and northern parts of the, the Murray-Darling Basin. The dams all just virtually went down to below 15% capacity. And that then increasingly crept further south and we got to a point where, you know, there was real scarcity around supply uh, in many of the river systems. Well, the drought broke and increasingly that occurred through 2020 and right through to 2023. And even here where we're, where we're making the podcast in Sydney, you had a record rainfall year last year. But that climate cycle is something which is has been in observance a long time. Um, that record sort of rainfall, you have to go back to periods like 1974, 75 and, and in the mid-50s uh, to see that sort of flooding that occurred. <clears throat> and we expect that. We, we There's going to be cycles. And now we're seeing a situation where the opposite's starting to occur in the Pacific Ocean where the setup, we're, we're moving from a La Nina condition, which is usually heavier rainfall in Australia, back towards an El Nino, which is more correlated with drought here. So that cyclicality is one of the reasons our investment in this fund is not correlated to anything else. Mm. So one, one of the reasons we really like it in the portfolio in that 
David Koch can get up in the morning and say equities have done this overnight and the lead into Australia is going to be this, that and the other. And that seems to be very uncorrelated with the price that our farmer up at WeWar is willing to pay for their water. So we love that. Yeah, and, that, and that's it. So, you know, in, in years like we've just had, there's been a lot of rainfall, there's been a lot of water falling from the sky for free, if you like, and that's meant that, you know, it has been more difficult for us to generate income. But we have a lot of different tools at our disposal. So we're leasing out water rights over, you know, three, five, ten year periods, generating fixed income, regardless of whether it's wet or dry. Mm-hmm. We're forward selling water, you know, 12 months out, 18 months out to, to uh, be able to then allow farmers to, at the same time, forward sell their, their produce. So we've got cotton growers, prices are really strong at the moment. They want to secure even next year's crop that they can forward sell for delivery in July of 2024, that they're going to plant in, in September, October 23. They're buying water from us now at a, at a premium well above the spot market. And, and that's how we then, in managing, we're actively managing the fund to generate that income using a whole lot of different tools and applying a real risk management approach. We can't guess at what the weather's going to do um, six months out. We certainly follow all the models, but, uh, you know, we contend with that variability. And, and that's something that you can observe going back over the 120-year 120 rainfall record in Australia. We've had patterns where, you know, we're going to have droughts, we're going to have floods, and, and we manage through that. Interestingly, though, you know, the, the value of these assets that derive this water each year, so the entitlements that the capital is invested into, mm. they don't move around as much because, whether it's wet or dry. And in fact, in, in 2022... Yeah, we had a sorry in twenty twenty one twenty two. We actually had capital growth of around about ten percent in in the assets that we hold in the fund, even though it was a really wet year. Um, we saw that the investment that's occurred in particularly permanent crops, the trees had got to a stage where they needed more water in the long term, and some of those proponents of those projects then needing to buy more of these water rights to secure their twenty year long investment. So regardless of the wet year that year, it didn't impact necessarily the value of the assets because mm-hmm. they're finite. There's not there's not more of them to be had. And so we saw this competition bidding up the, the value of the assets, even though water was plentiful that year. So again, it's a little bit of a uh, something which is different about this asset class itself. There are some really idiosyncrasies about what we do. And, uh, and again, another reason why it's sort of not correlated to any other traditional sort of investment. And Kim, I, I think the performance of the fund over the last 12 months has been pretty flat. What, what, what's the, why has that been yep. flat in that way? Yeah, so you're right. It has been pretty flat, mostly because of the fact that we've had three continuous years of availability of water. So the income generation has really made it more and more difficult. The first going into that period, you know, we had a lot of leases that were a three-year tenure. They've sort of started to roll off more and that's meant that generating income has become more challenging. We haven't seen much capital growth in the last 12 months. In fact, it's been quite flat. Uh, there's not been a lot of pressure from any farmers to sell any assets, but at the same time, they're not necessarily wanting to buy new ones. We've had, you know, those farmers that we wore and right throughout the basin, uh, right throughout eastern Australia, western Australia, with few exceptions, have had fantastic conditions and they've been generating a lot of cash flows. They've been paying down a lot of previous debts. They've been expanding in some cases, buying neighbouring properties. Land values have jumped 
considerably. You know, the the sort of average la- farmland values the last two years have gone up twenty percent a year, mm-hmm. uh, in some cases more, uh, and that you know that's sort of where there's been expansion going on. Water rights they've been quite flat the last twelve months after a you know sort of ten or fifteen percent gains in the prior year. And that's not unusual. This is not a case of, you know, the, the, it's a straight line. It's it's going to be periods where there'll be appreciation, then it might flatten out. Uh, we typically see these gains when there's some technological change, where there's some uh, improvement in efficiency or there's some new plantings of high-value crops that is changing that mix of what is what are we irrigating and what is the demand for that longer term. Like when they start putting cotton into Julia Creek. Oh, I don't think that's necessarily going to be happening, but it's dry land up there, really. So, mm. um, you know, what they're looking at in that part of the world is, and across the Northern Territory and Northern Queensland, is the summer rainfall uh, is such, and the varieties that they're able to grow these days is such that you can actually get a quite a rewarding crop proposition just re- just growing with rainfall in that part of the world. Um, and so that tends to be what most people are looking at, well, the few proponents who are pursuing that. There is a cotton gin currently under construction near Catherine in the Northern Territory uh, that is predominantly catering to cotton, which is going to be grown on rainfall, not irrigated. Uh, And there's also one in the Ord River that's been proposed and likely constructed over the next two years. That's more about irrigated cotton in that part of the world. So you have a, a fascinating view over the sort of horticultural, agricultural uh, ecosystem in Australia. What, what are the areas or the trends that you think, you know, if I was, if you were going to retire and be the farmer or not, <laughs> not that it's retirement, it's probably harder. Um, what are the areas you see that are looking right at this moment as very, very attractive and those that are looking, well, that's going to be really tough going forward? Yeah, well, I think we've talked about some of these underlying trends. The demand for food is not going away. And mm. uh, and what's also sort of another element around that is, well, I see two things. There's been a lot of venture capital raised for ag tech and food tech in the last five years. Mm-hmm. Now, some of those results of the application of that capital are now starting to flow through in some breakthrough type technologies and just the uh, precision farming methodologies uh, that are now starting to really bear some fruit around uh, the productivity of crops. And that's what we've seen in some of these farmland values. You know, why is the value of land jump 20% two years running? Now, partly that's because we've got better techniques around planting the crop, around harvesting efficiencies, around weed the, control. The agronomists yeah, and the knowledge. Yeah, all of that. Um, the yields, you know, the varieties these cotton guys are producing and the yields. You know, when I was in that industry, you know, 15 years ago, you know, we're now talking about 8% per annum productivity gains that they've experienced since then over the last decade or so. That's phenomenal. And, you know, it's a story really hard to tell because, you know, people want to focus on... Uh, historical perceptions of that industry, but it, it's a fantastically technologically advanced industry, and that's part of the driver around um, you know what's going on with the value of water. People want to expand; it's profitable, um, and water is their limitation. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's sort of emerging is really around carbon, and this push around well, okay, we we, we need to create these carbon credits. Uh, you know, agriculture is sort of front and centre in terms of obviously sitting on large land parcels. Uh, there's soil carbon em- emission 
opportunities. There's uh, tree planting opportunities um, that are now starting to be emerging more and more, and particularly sort of given some legislation here in Australia around the top, you know, 200 odd admitted, largest emitters having to abate you know, 5% a year, uh, then that's going to drive some investment into the sector as well, which is a new income source for, um, you know, for an opportunity for a lot of agriculturalists. Uh, and also the location of things like wind farms and solar farms that are, you know, increasingly being proposed and and funded. Um, that's another perhaps generation of income for people who are in locations that um, you know are either benefiting from a lot of wind or you know have a lot of solar hours. Kim, who? Well, firstly, what's the size of the fund at the moment? So our fund is now five hundred and sixty million dollars uh, in NAV value, um, and we represent about 130,000 megalitres of water in the southern Murray-Darling Basin and that's, uh, it, it sounds like a lot, but it, it's not when you compare it against some of the large irrigators that we have as customers. Now, we've got some large almond farming companies, vineyards, uh, some citrus operations. You know, there's publicly listed almond company that, you know, basically we know um, analysing their balance sheet and the scale of operations, you know, they need to source about 100,000 megalitres of water a year from the outside of their own balance sheet. And, you know, they're just one of several, maybe a dozen companies that um, are planted with permanent crops but don't actually own the water rights that feed those crops. So they're an active buyer or lessee for what we're doing. Uh, and they've elected to sort of supply, in, you know, invest their capital more in operating these farms and generating perhaps, you know, 15 to 20% returns. Uh, we have a, a different risk profile where we're going, okay, well, if we can generate, you know, 10% returns and we have liquidity and we can sell these things readily, uh, then that's what we'd prefer to pursue rather than being concentrated on a particular commodity in a particular geographic location with all the operating risks that you have as a farmer. And what, what's your typical investor look like? Yeah, well, in the fund we have our our fund is about forty percent of the capital is from offshore, and that's typically institutional type capital. Um, our top twenty unit holders hold over seventy five percent of the fund. It's about eighty percent of the fund. That ranges from some Australian family offices, uh, high net worth investors. You know, certainly Code has been a fantastic supporter of of uh, this investment through the fund in what we're doing. Uh, we have perhaps around 600 different investors in the fund these days and, and typically it's sophisticated Australian investors and some offshore uh, in smaller institutions who have been looking for this non-correlated investment, mm. something which you know, is, it has different drivers and, and in particular some of those come from countries where <laughs> water is already a limiting factor for them so they really do get the thematic they go well yeah water is such a critical input for food production uh, that you know we would like to be exposed to it i, I think uh, a, a lot of, in australia we often have a look at some of the sophistication of some of the canadian pension funds or similar and we see the type of assets they're looking to acquire and uh, their, their names tend to come up when we get doing some research uh, on the water rights areas. So so that's interesting. Yeah, certainly. You know, we've got, well, one uh, in particular that you know, has invested very large amounts of money in irrigated agriculture and other agricultural assets here uh, with a very long-term perspective. So, you know, 
outside of what we've got um, in our fund and then we also manage a mandate for an Australian super fund alongside uh, you know, the, if you were to look down the list of who is the largest holders of water rights in Australia, it's it's basically uh, institutional capital backing some very large irrigated enterprises in Australia. Now, you touched on it a moment ago, and I was going to ask about it before, but given you've mentioned it, um, you, you talked about um, or flagged upon how much of the market you weren't really, and I yep. think that plays into... Often, you know, I have some clients who are off the land and rural people and their first gut instinct in reaction to this type of strategy is, well, gee, isn't this crowding the farmer out? Isn't this creating competition for the farmer and driving up water rights? What's your response to that, Kim? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, with all the capital that we have been, you know, attracting and investing, this has been, you know, now over 10 years of running the fund, uh, we still represent less than 2% of the water rights that are on issue out there uh, for farmers. But I get back to why do we do this in the first place and why we're doing this is to provide capital to farmers. Now, all the water rights are owned by farmers other than the ones the government's acquired for the environment. Uh, and it is a big part of their balance sheet. And, and the reason we do what we do is we've looked at how do these farmers actually scale up and, and be able to cater to these export market opportunities. Uh, rice and even cotton, you know, they're available in lots of different parts of the world. It's a bulk, largely undifferentiated crop. Uh, wheat, you'd say the same, but irrigated crops, okay. Well, if we can produce more of these high value crops that may be table citrus, it may be table grapes, it may be wine, it may be nuts that goes into food production, then we should be encouraging that. And that requires capital. It requires patient capital. You can't just offer family balance sheet that where you're growing an annual crop of rice or cotton, switch easily into a permanent crop where you're going to have five, seven years where you've not got any cash flow coming off until those trees have grown. And so that's really what we've been facilitating. Um, how do we get the capital there? Well, we can invest in the ownership of water rights that then liberates that capital from that farm balance sheet. They still get to use the water. They can either lease it back from us or they can buy the water as they need it. But they then access private, you know, their own private capital, if you like, to then go and do those sorts of developments. And once they've done that, they have a far higher capacity to pay for water than they ever did before. If your margins are 10 times higher per megalitre of water after you've done that transition, it makes you a far more sustainable proposition in the future. You talked about legislation before and I think, you know, this is in our minds one of the things that you're facing against and you sort of think, well, you know, this this structure was created by the Australian government, which I think in many ways is world leading in much the same ways that people look at Medicare from overseas and go, that's a fantastic system, albeit it doesn't feel like that to us sometimes <laughs> here. Um, but are you concerned about future legislation and, for instance, somebody deciding that the allocation that needs to go to environmental purposes has to be increased or it changes the framework to a degree where it... Um, you know, destroys wealth or inhibits growth for your investors? So where we're at today is the legislative framework has been evolved over a long period of time, like 40 years or more, where, you know, we did recognise that as state governments we'd probably built too many dams, issued too many water rights and that the rivers were maybe too much water being extracted. So there's been a really deliberate process 
that sort of culminated in 2005 and saying, okay, let's create this uh, security of title around the water rights that farmers own. Uh, we, are to, we, we want to get some of them back uh, to be able to then direct that water back to the environmental flows. So rather than a ratio which historically was sort of 50-50 in these river systems, 50% environment, 50% consumption, uh, the governments have gone, well, we're going to buy back some water rights from farmers and they don't have to sell. It's their choice whether they want to or not. There's a market signal, a price, which you know they can decide whether they want to sell to unlock that value or not. And by acquiring those, taxpayers have basically boosted the amount of water that's in the environmental flows from 50% to sort of 65%. Uh, and farmers over that last decade have basically been willing sellers of you know, perhaps around 25% of their water rights in different districts. Uh, and so we've already made that adjustment. Now, that was a market-driven adjustment, deliberately so, as the compensation mechanism. And, so, and it's very bipartisan, that particular uh, framework. Um, when the Murray-Darling Basin Plan passed the parliament in 2012, it came after many, many years of debate and we got to a, a position which was really, I guess, a compromise on all sides to go, okay, this is the best balance uh, we're really confident that there's never going to be a change that means that these titles that we're invested in uh, are going to be taken away from us. They, the, there is no, in fact, that's not even permitted in the Commonwealth's legislation. They can't compulsorily acquire these water titles. The mechanism for, for acquiring it is the market, is basically saying, well, we're going to buy more of them back. And that's one of the things that the Commonwealth Government now is sort of contemplating at the margin, do we go and buy some more back uh, to further increase the amount of environmental flows. And so what that's likely to do is there'll be a new taxpayer-funded effort which will put a lot of capital into buying back some water rights. It'll be a case that, well, who's willing to sell at what value and, and the farmers themselves will be doing the numbers to go, well... Uh, what is it? That, what is it going to take for me to wrap up my farming, irrigated farming business, and never irrigate again? Uh, how do I need to be compensated for that? And that's what we think will happen: is if the government's so keen on buying back more, the decisions will be by individual farmers to go. Well, uh, what is that value got to be for the water rights we already hold? We expect that's going to be quite bullish. That we'll have this new big taxpayer-funded effort, which is going to buy some water out, water rights out of the market, there'll be less around afterwards. There'll be a concentration of that competition at a higher value because the people who are likely to sell are going to be those who are not really the most high-value users of water. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've seen historically. Um, you know, we had a buyback program from 2008 to 2012. Uh, that removed about 25% of the water rights on issue that fundamentally changed availability of water and it actually removed a lot of lower value users of water. Uh, and now we've got farmers who are very, very focused on what is the return they can generate out of that limited resource that they do have access to. And Kim, do you get concerned, you know, every now and again, you'll see a, a current affairs type of show with people with pictures at the top of the Darling River with dead fish and dried up areas and, and you know, the claims are that, you know, this has all been taken by um, agriculture and it's been 
you know, uh, promoted by people who are in here trading the rights or similar. Is that something that you see as carrying weight or of a concern? Yeah, look, I mean, there's always going to be politics, particularly around water when you, uh, even locally, you know, there are farmers who have water and there are farmers who don't. And there's vast differences in their ability to then produce crops in times of drought, for example. And that Mm -hmm. can set up some, you know, petty politics locally when when people go, I'm missing out because I don't have any. And someone who's seeing that they have paid or own these water rights still being able to produce in those conditions. The politics is also, you know, pretty, you know, it can be extreme at times. Like greatest examples, okay, we've had two fish kills that have made the national press. One was in 2019 when there was no rainfall for the prior three years and fish died as a result of there not being any water in the rivers. It wasn't that anybody took the water out. It just didn't flow into the rivers. And there was a full scientific review and the conclusion of that was this is the reason. There wasn't any inflows. There wasn't any water here. The pools started drying up. The fish concentrated in volume. And yes, you're going to have fish deaths because there's a deoxygenation. Then just only a month ago, we've had the similar thing happening. After three years of flooding rainfall, massive floods, that uh, the most flooding that we've had in the Murray system and the Darling system since the 1956 flood. Now, what happened in those events is so much water, it's flooded out across all these floodplains. You've had these massive fish breeding events out in a big area that as the water receded back into the channel of the river, all those fish got concentrated back into a really narrow channel and a similar thing then happened. You had a deoxygenation event where all those fish that were spread out over hundreds of kilometres, like the river in some parts is 50 kilometres wide, is now back in a river channel that's, you know, 600 metres wide uh, or less. And you can imagine what that does to, to the population of fish and the oxygen they're trying to get out of the water. So, you know, I think when you look at some of the practicalities, this, there's, yes, headline grabbing incidences, but um, I think we need to dig a bit deeper to actually see some of the realities. Terrific. Well, Kim, um, look, that's been a fantastic update. Um, let's make it a little less than three years next time and we'll check in on you. But uh, uh, thank you for the work uh, that you're doing. We, we really enjoy um, hearing from you. We enjoy the update. Uh, and, and thank you very much for your time today on Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, and next time I'll perhaps uh, bring along a couple of my colleagues as well because it's <laughs> not just me doing this. We've got a, a team of, you know, there's six of us dedicated at managing our water portfolio and, uh, and you know, we're, we're doing that actively every day. But really appreciate your support and, and the opportunity to explain it to Trip. your listeners. Thanks, Kim. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.